Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I would have nailed Carl with his hands to a coffee table and just, and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, who, who's, whose life would be... I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone, there'd be an enormous amount of uh, especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of guilt remorse afterwards but then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger infamous hitman joe mad dog sullivan was the only man to ever escape from attica maximum security prison the audacious career criminal started out life as a good irish catholic boy in a squarehead family in queens the sudden death of his detective father and the horrendous effect it had on his family broke something inside young Joe. In part two of this two-part special, new father Mad Dog Joe Sullivan soaks up some culture while honeymooning with his wife Gail. He then sails right back into knocking mobsters for Fat Tony Salerno. But a misstep sees him fall out with his mobster employers. His drug and alcohol addictions spiral out of control and the once cold-as-ice killer starts making rookie mistakes that eventually lead to his downfall. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now, before we commence part two of our special on contract killer Mad Dog Joe Sullivan, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Patrons have access to dozens of other episodes, including our wholesome and family-friendly early stuff. Uh-huh. And levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. In part one of our special on contract killer Mad Dog Joe Sullivan, we covered his teen years in juvenile detention for petty crimes before his graduation to armed robberies and murder. After escaping from Attica Maximum Security Prison in 1971, Joe hit up made man John Sullivan for a job. Through John, Joe became a contract killer for Fat Tony Salerno and the notorious Genovese crime family. He was said to have disposed of Jimmy Hoffa's body for them and murdered up to 30 people, including two of Mickey Spillane's top gunmen, 
Tommy Devaney and Eddie the Butcher Kaminsky. With their extravagant wedding behind them, Joe and Gail jetted off to Europe for their honeymoon. After a short stay in London where they took in the musical Godspell, they visited Stratford and enjoyed a performance of Henry V. Just because you're a hitman doesn't mean you can't be into the classics, Tara. No, in fact, it's more of a reason to be. They also toured Scotland and war-torn Belfast in Ireland, which Joe likened to the South Bronx. Refreshed and feeling cultured, upon return to New York, 38-year-old Joe Sullivan carried out half a dozen more hits for the Genovese family and several murders of accomplices in bungled burglaries. Joe has never named those he killed, as he didn't want to turn rat and implicate anyone else in the crimes, but he has admitted how he did it. Joe liked to get real, up close and personal. He would casually chat to his target for up to 20 minutes before shooting them once in the head. Joe, possibly inspired by his trips to the theatre, described the blood spilt during one of these murders as watching the bright red fruit of my labour paint the bar's side wall as a roar of the gun seemed to thunder its approval. Very poetic. After whacking a guy, Joe would casually stroll out to a waiting car. His disguise fooled everyone and was so normal-looking that the witnesses would give several different descriptions of him to the police. Often Joe would hear of a murder he'd just committed being reported on the radio, with the Bulls saying they were looking for a Hispanic man of medium build with an afro. Why did Bulls say anything? Bulls. Bulls, like male cows. Oh, that's what they called the popo in those days. The New York popo. The, the bulls. bulls. The Bulls. All righty. Joe's next contract was to take out an old school crim and wise guy named Carmine Lilo Galanti. Galanti was born in a tenement building in the East Harlem section of Manhattan in 1910. He was a punk thug very early in life, with convictions for assault from the age of 15. Although he did sometimes dabble in the squarehead industries of fish sorting and artificial flowers too. In August 1930, Galanti was arrested for the murder of a police officer during a payroll heist, but he never served time. Later that year, a New York police officer caught Galanti and other gang members attempting to hijack a truck in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. In the ensuing gun battle, Galanti wounded the officer and a six-year-old bystander. Fortunately, both survived. Galanti got 12 and a half years in state prison for this, but was out in nine. By 1940, Galanti was whacking dudes for the big man himself, Vito Genovese, the then underboss of the Luciano crime family. Galanti had a vile reputation for viciousness and a cold, dead-eyed stare that scared the bejesus out of both wise guys and cops alike. Ralph Salerno, a New York police detective who was no relation to Fat Tony Salerno, once said, of all the gangsters that I've met personally, and I've met dozens of them in all my years, there were only two who, when I looked them straight in the eye, I decided I wouldn't want them to be really personally mad at me. One of them was Carmine Galanti. He had bad eyes. I mean, he had the frigid glare of a killer. In 1943, Galanti allegedly murdered Carlo Tresca, the publisher of an anti-fascist newspaper in New York. Vito Genovese had him kill Tresca as a favour to then-Italian president Benito Mussolini. Although Galanti was arrested as a suspect, no one was ever actually charged with Tresca's murder. Galanti made his money in drugs, which pissed off a lot of the old fellas in the New York crime families. Just as well, Galanti wasn't very good at it and he kept getting pinched. His first narcotics trial in November 1960 was marred with controversy and shenanigans. 
The judge eventually declared a mistrial after the jury foreman had fallen down some stairs at an abandoned building in the middle of the night and was unable to continue. He was so accident prone. Galanti's second trial on the narcotics beef in 1962 fared better and culminated in him getting sentenced to 20 years. In 1973, Galanti's long-term enemy, Frank Costello, died, but the ill will Galanti held did not die with him. Frank Costello was a key figure in the birth of the modern American mob, and he was vehemently against the drug trade. Costello greased the palms of everyone from Hollywood stars to politicians, and he came to be known as the Prime Minister of the Underworld. When Carmen Galanti was released from prison in 1974, after only 12 years in the clink, he allegedly celebrated his freedom in a rather unique way, Tara. Yeah? By exploding the doors on Frank Costello's mausoleum on what would have been his 83rd birthday. Happy birthday, Frank. During the late 1970s, Galanti allegedly organised the murders of at least eight members of the Gambino family, with whom he had an intense rivalry. The New York crime families were alarmed at Galanti's rambunctious behaviour and his brazen attempt at cornering the narcotics market. Galanti also refused to share any drug profits with the other families. They did not think this was cool, and a hit on Galanti was sanctioned by the bosses. Although Galanti's death was bearing down on him, he held tight to his cavalier attitude, saying, No one will ever kill me. They wouldn't dare. Joe Mad Dog Sullivan and his handler, John Sullivan, had been tracking Galanti for months, as had agents from the FBI. Following him wasn't easy, as Galanti was flanked by three bodyguards and they had to avoid being made by the feds that were tailing him too. One morning they saw Galanti come out of his 33rd Street apartment and start strolling up towards Lexington. Same as every other day, except this time he was alone. Joe looked around. There were no feds either. Come on, John, let's go, Joe said. Joe grabbed his quiet piece, a twenty-two automatic that was already silenced, from beneath the floor mat in their car as John pulled out from the curb and trailed Galanti down the road. Galanti, with a cigar firmly planted in his fat face, must have been feeling like a treat, so he entered a candy shop. Joe slid his gun into a newspaper, jumped out of the van and waited for him to come out. That's when John shut it down. Joe, John called out to him. Joe froze for a moment and then went back to the van. What is it? he asked John. It don't look right, John said nervously. Joe turned back to the candy shop to see Galanti halfway up the road and about to turn a corner, whilst shoveling licorice all sorts into his mouth. They had lost their opportunity. Joe was floored. Was John losing it? God damn it, we had the cocksucker. Joe went home and didn't call John for a week. That'll show him. Joe never did get to shoot Carmine Lilo Galanti. Someone beat him to it on July 12, 1979, just as Galanti finished scoffing down his lunch on the patio at a restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Three men wearing ski masks stormed in and opened fire with shotguns and handguns. Galanti and two of his goons were killed instantly. There's actually a famous picture of the blood-covered slain Galanti, and he still has the cigar in his mouth. Mm, I've seen that. Yeah, I know. It's, there's a lot of pictures of these murdered mobsters, actually. Yeah. Yeah, they, they weren't shy of, you know, taking some, some snuff pics back in the day, were they? No. Mad Dog was a sad dog. Being a triple threat of daddy, devoted husband and hitman was stressful. 
To keep the lid firmly shut on that box of emotions that he buried deep inside himself, Joe began spiralling downward into the 70s disco world of cocaine and alcohol. To sleep, Joe would throw down a few Valium. Joe told his wife Gail that he'd got a part-time job as a bouncer at a discotheque called Kisses. It was the perfect cover for his nefarious nocturnal activities. Ah, his nefarious nocturnal noodling. That's it. Gail started to notice his erratic behaviour, but again, she didn't ask questions, later saying, It wasn't my life and it didn't affect me per se, so that was Joe's work. I'm sure he wouldn't know the people that I associated with at work. Sure. Way to (laughs) rationalise. She's very good at it. After teaming up with some friends from the disco scene, Joe started sticking up payrolls and jewellery stores from the Diamonds Districts for a bit of a lark and, of course, some extra cash. Joe was chuffed when he got the call from the Genovese family to take out Mickey Spillane's last remaining top enforcer, Tommy the Greek Kapatos, who was actually French. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. Joe describes the Greek in his biography Tears and Tears as a short, mean-looking bastard pushing close to 60 with iron-grey hair and a noticeable limp. That's what it says in his grinder profile too. Yeah, it writes itself, doesn't it? The Greek was known to always carry a brown paper bag with a pistol in it. Joe stalked the Greek for weeks. He memorised his routine, including him coming out of his building early in the morning and then waiting on the pavement for his driver, which the Greek did every day, like clockwork. Wily Tommy the Greek Kapados knew there was a hit out on him and was very careful. He'd pay his doorman to look up and down outside to see if anyone was on the streets before he'd step out. The Greek was suspicious of everybody, except people walking dogs. Now that would be his big mistake. At 6.15am on a brass monkey balls freezing morning on January 27th, 1977, Joe and his wife's dog, Duke, were so cold they thought their nuts were about to fall off. Just a little walk, buddy, Joe said to Duke. I'll buy you a diamond-studded collar, get you laid. How about a big steak? (laughs) Duke stared up at him with a look of, who are you, bullshitting wolf. (laughs) They walked down a snow-covered 34th Street, shivering. Joe squeezed the 38 in his pocket as he spotted the Greek up ahead, clutching his paper bag. But as Joe picked up the pace, he was pulled back by the dog. Joe explained. Duke decided to take a crap. I say, oh my God, come on, Duke. So I yanked on his leash, but the Greek fucking sees me yanking away. That's when the fucking old man's instincts kicked in and the Greek bastard starts to run. That's when I go for the mass. You know, bang. I went up to the guy to make sure, but he was dead. Both Joe and Duke hightailed it into a waiting van. Inside, Joe gave Duke a big pat on his head. Good boy, Duke, good boy. Rough, said Duke, his tail wagging. Joe Sullivan had done it. Mickey Spillane's top three lieutenants were all dead and Fat Tony had Hell's Kitchen in his fat little cigar-pinching fingers. With all the criminal rackets on the west side in a Genovese's grasp, the Jacob Javits Convention Centre was now a low-hanging ripe plum ready to be plucked. After snuffing out the Greek, Joe has mentioned in his biography that he whacked another eight men. Mickey Spillane, now toothless and lacking protection, knew his days were numbered. On May 13, 1977, his number came up. But although Joe had a contract on Mickey, Jimmy Coonan had an interest in seeing him dead too. Now, Coonan's the guy who helped Eddie the Butcher Kaminsky slice up fellow gang member Paddy Dugan's body into disposable pieces and then took the severed head out drinking at the Sunbright Bar. Oh, I remember. Uh, I remember it well. 
They also kept Patty Duggan's penis in a pickle jar in a refrigerator at the bar, which I think is dangerous. Jimmy Coonan was leader of a brutal new Irish gang known as the Westies. They were aligned with the Gambino crime family. Due to the way he took out his enemies, Jimmy would go on to be considered one of the most violent Irish gangsters of all time. Jimmy was pissy with Mickey Spillane because in the late 1960s, Mickey had kidnapped his straight accountant father and held him for ransom. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, Mickey had also pistol whipped him and beat him severely before returning him after the ransom was paid. Four bullets ended Mickey Spillane and it has long been rumoured that Roy DeMeo put them in Mickey to gain favour with Jimmy Coonan. Coonan subsequently took over as the boss of the Hell's Kitchen Irish mob after Mickey's untimely demise. Jimmy Coonan was a greedy cunt and he too wanted those lucrative building contracts that the Genoveses had their eye on. In late 1977, the Westies whacked a heap of wise guys connected to the Genoveses, including loan shark to the stars, Ruby Stein. Stein had close ties to the Genovese and Colombo crime families. Hang on a second. I thought the Colombo family was more about solving crimes. No, that's the fictional ones. Uh-huh. The real ones? Nah, wise guys. Okay. Lone Shark Stein was known to have over a million dollars out on the street, earning him shitloads of cash due to the diabolical interest rates. A bunch of the Westies owed massive amounts of money to Stein and were looking for a way out of their debts. After Stein was shot to death at the Westie-owned 596 Club and later decapitated, his body was dismembered some more in a bathroom and then dumped in the Hudson. Why did they need to dismember him more? There was another reason why Coonan wanted Stein dead. The Westies, as well as having their debts wiped, could now take over his loan shark customers and collect on the debts for themselves. Greedy guts. Hmm. None of this pleased Fat Tony, so after Stein's murder, Joe Sullivan was given the task to take out Jimmy Coonan. It should have been just another hit for Joe Tara, but Jimmy was a mate, having spent time with him in Auburn prison. Joe kept telling himself he was a professional. It was just a job and whacking dudes was just business. But he was beginning to grow weary of his profession. The combination of these factors would make Mad Dog Sullivan commit the biggest mistake of his killy career. It was now 1978 and Mad Dog Joe Sullivan was even more of a sad dog Joe Sullivan. He would later say, I always just had an expression, every man's death diminishes me. I used to laugh at it, but I felt like I was becoming a grim reaper. There was another fly in his murderous soup. Jimmy Coonan knew there was a contract out on him and he'd gone to ground. After weeks of hunting Coonan with fuck all to show for it, Joe came up with the next best thing. Coonan's right-hand man, brutal enforcer and complete nutter, Francis T. Featherstone, who went by the nickname Mickey. Vietnam War veteran Featherstone killed a bunch of mobsters before he was convicted in 1986 of a murder that he didn't do. About to serve 25 years in jail, he became a dirty rat and brought down Coonan's Westies. These days he's still, like, living in witness protection. Joe had located Featherstone in a rundown high-rise in the centre of Hell's Kitchen. This time, though, Joe had a different approach. His idea was to play Featherstone by pretending to reason with him. He told him that the Italians were paying crap and treating him like shit, and he said it was time that they teamed up, the Irish against the Italians. Joe recalled, I said, hey, listen, these fucking guineas got us all killing each other. Why don't we just get together and take everything? I want to sit down with you and Jimmy. Joe also told Featherstone that it was him that had taken out Mickey Spillane's enforcers. 
A meeting was set up for the following Thursday at the Placker Bar. Featherstone went to Coonan with Joe's offer, but there were some loose lips and words soon got back to the Genoveses, including John Sullivan. John was pissed off. Joe tried to explain what he'd told Featherstone was just his way of getting close to Coonan. John believed him, but was still angry. John told him, Are you fucking nuts? I've been trying to keep you under the radar and you fucking go over there and tell them you've been killing everybody? Joe, you gotta lay low for a while. Go on home to Queens. Joe was now out of the game and for the next two years he was in exile, living off the proceeds of his wife Gail Wiener's job at an advertising agency. Joe would have plenty of time to wallow in his fuck up and ponder his life. How the hell could I make a mistake like that? It was almost like a death wish. It's like I did it on purpose, without being conscious. With no dudes to whack, Joe spent some quality time with his toddler son Ramsey and took some Hollywood meetings. In the summer of 1978, Joe met with actor John Voigt and director Hal Ashby at John Gotti's Bergen Fish and Hunt Club on 101 Street in Ozone Park. John Voigt was keen to play Joe Sullivan in a film about Joe's life centred around his Attica escape. Writer TJ English notes, Allegedly, one of Voigt's greatest performances as an escaped convict in the movie Runaway Train was based on Joe Sullivan. Having gotten to know Sullivan, having heard him talk and observed his mannerisms, and having seen Voigt's characterization in the movie, I'd say Sully had a case for a theft of personality. An even more accurate version is the character Voigt plays in the TV series Ray Donovan. You want to know what Joe Sullivan was like? His manner of speech, his physical movements, his hard-boiled demeanour? Watch John Voigt in Ray Donovan. You should watch it anyway. It's a great show. Oh, and John Voigt's awesome in it. I particularly like it when he dances in a towel. I do like that. I hope that's how um, Mad Dog danced too. I think he would have. Yeah, me too. Later that year, he met with Robert De Niro and director John Hancock about another film which never came to be. If only Joe had pursued his movie writing career. But Joe, being Joe, did Joe things, Tara. <laughs> to keep the lid down on his psychotic Pandora's box of bad feelings, Joe sunk further into the booze and the drugs. He also started stepping out on Gail, banging his friend's sister-in-law, raven-haired 23-year-old Teresa Palmieri. Cad dog Sullivan. Now, Tara, there isn't a lot of information available on Joe's side piece, Teresa. This is probably because his wife, Gail, was his official biographer, penning two books about Joe's life, Tears and Tears, published in 2006, and Cellmates, Pals, Punks and Double Bunks, published in 2012. If I'm writing my spouse's biography, I'm not spending time talking up their mistress either. Damn straight. One thing we do know about Teresa is that she and Joe dressed up in Prohibition-era gangster costumes and posed for a photo like the famous picture Bonnie and Clyde had taken in the 1930s. Joe's wife, Gail, busy repressing her concerns about his working life, somehow made room to push down her suspicions that he was cheating on her too. She said, I'm very good at making excuses for Joe. When Joe had the girlfriend, I thought, well, okay, he's part of the crowd. While his other friends were doing it. The only way I survive is denial. You go about your business and everything's normal. I lived in denial. It was a very easy way to live. Of his affair, Joe said... If anything, it was me. I thought I could have my cake and eat it too. But he couldn't, could he, Barney? Because only Barney two cakes can do that. Well, that's right, Tara. Mm Mm-hmm. 
1980, just as Joe was resigning himself to the life of a cheating stay-at-home husband, he got a call that put him back to work. After two years of being benched, his special skill set was needed by the mob again. John Sullivan called him and said that Fat Tony himself had called him in and wanted to meet with Joe. Now that Joe had outed himself, the boss man was curious who'd been doing all of these hits for him. When interviewed years later about why he didn't take the opportunity to stay out of the murder-for-hire business, Joe said, It was the only life that I knew. Maybe I was afraid to give that up. What am I if I'm not that? Who am I if not that, when it's all you've ever been? I would have liked to see Joe explore the career potentialities of call centre customer service work. Can't you just imagine it? Welcome to Amtrak. You're speaking with Mad Dog Joe Sullivan. How may I help you today? Working in customer service makes you want to kill people, but Joe was doing that already. I reckon he could have become a team leader in no time. Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. Now, part of the reason why Joe got back in the game was his fierce but misplaced loyalty to John Sullivan. After an uneventful meeting with Fat Tony and John Sullivan in a midtown restaurant where all they talked about was baseball... And large pretzels. John told Joe about the hit that Fat Tony had in mind for him to do next. Old Blue Eyes himself... Frank Sinatra. When Joe heard Fat Tony wanted him to bump off Sinatra, his jaw dropped. Frank Sinatra had been a gangster, groupie and wannabe since 1947. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. He started off brown-nosing to Lucky Luciano before getting fobbed off to Frank Costello, Vito Genovese and now Fat Tony Salerno. He had taken up annoying Gene Cano and the Gambinos. Everyone was so, so tired of his shit, especially Fat Tony. Old shit-stained eyes was also talking to the feds. John told Joe, Yeah, that's why the fat guy wanted to get a look at you firsthand. This hit ain't sanctioned. It's a long-time personal beef. So why me, Joe thought. He thought there was something fishy about it. John replied, as I said, this ain't sanctioned, so the fat guy can't use a made member or anyone connected to the family. This is very dangerous, Joe. It's like killing a king. If there's even a whisper where it came from, we're both dead and so's the fat guy. Do you understand what I'm saying? One word and we'd never survive it. Okay, let's do it, Joe said. The plan was Sinatra would be in town for a quiet sit-down with Fat Tony at the Sign of the Dove, a fancy, fancy restaurant on 3rd Avenue. Old Brown Nose Eyes would arrive about 8pm with one bodyguard. Both would be hit. Joe's plan was to use a little sawn-off double barrel, since there ain't no missing with that. He would also carry a 9mm for backup in case things get hairy. Like my shoulders. Mm-hmm. Joe was totally devastated when on the big day, after standing at the bar for two hours in his lumpy suit, Frank and his goon didn't show. Sinatra apparently had the sniffles. The hit was later called off after Frank was given a good talking to. Soon after, Joe got another call from John. Joe recollected, John called me. He said, get in here. We got a big banana to peel. And it seems John was not being metaphorical. 
This time the target was a top Philadelphia mobster named Antonio Rocco Carpenegro, otherwise known as Tony Bananas. Fat Tony Solano still conducted business from his headquarters at the Palmer Boys Social Club, as well as a variety of other hangouts in East Harlem. In April 1980, Joe Sullivan was summoned to a meeting to discuss the impending demise of Tony Bananas. Tony Bananas' father owned and managed a banana stand at the Italian market, also known as the South 9th Street Curb Market. This was seen as reason enough for him to be given the nickname Tony Bananas. Now, despite his ridiculous nickname, Mr. Bananas had form. His police record included arrests for car theft, burglary, robbery, bootlegging and suspicion of that ultimate crime. Coveting thy friend's beer? Uh-uh, Barney. Murder. Mm, that's bad, I guess. You guess? Jesus. In 1976, Bananas was sentenced to two years in prison for a crime he committed in 1974 to avoid a subpoena. After his release from prison, he rose in rank to become the consigliere of Angelo Bruno, a.k.a. the Gentle Don of the Philadelphia crime family. Bruno earned his nickname as he preferred to negotiate with people rather than have them killed. He was also a kind and sensitive lover. Hey, baby. Tony Bananas, hungry for power and money and anticipating the end of Angelo Bruno's peaceful regime and lovemaking, decided to put the task upon himself to hasten his departure. He already knew that he could count on the support of numerous key members of Bruno's administration after the Don was done. Bananas approached Frank Funzi Thierry from the Genovese crime family with a plan to murder Bruno and take over the Philadelphia family. Apparently, Funzi assured Bananas that he would support him before the families, known as the Commission, after Bruno's demise. Angelo Bruno was killed by a shotgun blast to the head while sitting in his car outside his house in Philadelphia on March 21, 1980. When the Commission found out about Bruno's murder, Tony Bananas was summoned to a very serious meeting. There would be no tiny muffins, no egg sandwiches cut into quarters, and certainly no Chianti. The Commission told Bananas that the murder had not been sanctioned by them. He turned to Funzi Thierry for support, saying that he was the one who had sanctioned the hit. But Funzi firmly denied it. This resulted in the Commission sentencing Bananas to be split. The Genovese family and Fat Tony Salerno set up the hit. On April 17th, 1980, Mad Dog Joe Sullivan drove into Spanish Harlem with his handler John. Fat Tony had arranged for a sit-down with Tony Bananas at one of his favourite hangouts. Mad Dog came packing a Mac 11 45 calibre with a 30-round clip and a long, lightweight 18-inch silencer, which he'd already test-fired by emptying a clip into a sack of potatoes. Joe was pleased by the way it handled and the soft, dull thumping sounds the weapon made. At the club, Joe slipped into the shadows behind a fridge near the door. When Tony Bananas walked in and was about to sit down, Joe stepped out of the light and said, Hey, Tony. Tony Bananas was a big gorilla of a man, about 300 pounds and 5'10". He was wearing a tan sports jacket and white open neck shirt from which a huge chunk of black hair was pouring out of. Bananas growled at Joe when he saw him. Joe describes the hit thusly. You talk about the guy dying tough. It was amazing. No fear. He came right at me like a runaway rhinoceros. Three times I hit him. Each time was a ten-round burst which shredded his shirt into a bloody mess, but still he charged at Joe, until eventually he was pushed back against the wall. Joe said, 
His eyes rolled back into his head and he just slid down the wall, leaving a bright red smear. He's like hissing, like a death rattle. I hit him with another 30 round clip. I didn't know the guy, but he had $23,000 in his pocket. Then we had the cleanup crew come in. Tony Banana's bullet-laden body was found the next day in the trunk of a car in the Bronx. He had been stripped naked and money was stuffed into his ears, his mouth and his nose. Every orifice of his body, in fact. Yes, Tara, every orifice. The Mafia had sent an unsubtle message to anyone thinking of following in his footsteps that it was greed that had got Bananas killed. Joe said the assassination of the great greedy guts Tony Bananas was his last hit for the Genovese family. With his career at a standstill, he sank deeper into drugs and alcohol. Joe's coke habit was getting so bad that even Gail had to acknowledge it. After a three-day bender, Gail would ban him from their bed. See, she was pregnant with their second child, and she really didn't need to be kept awake by Joe's snoring and his tossing and turning and coke sweats. Joe would take a handful of Valium and sleep for 14 hours on the couch. Paranoia was starting to set in, and Joe began to hate Gail's dog, Duke, as Duke was sleeping on his side of the bed. Joe would yell at the hound and be mean to him about his misplaced loyalty, and then after feeling bad about it, he'd cry and give Duke plenty of pats and lots of treats. As he should, because this dog is keeping secrets for him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this, this dog, he don't rat nobody out. He ain't no squealer. Nah. The impending due date of his pregnant wife, Gail, did nothing to lift Joe's spirits. On February 11th, 1981, the couple welcomed another son, whom they named Kelly. Long-suffering Gail took yet another one for the team by looking after both their boys on her own. Joe was in no shape to be a father. The gram of coke he snorted and the half a quart of squat she used to wash down mouthfuls of Valium every day could hardly be considered parenting-enhancing drugs. This was a double bummer, as just months later, Joe's girlfriend Teresa told him that she was pregnant. The formerly cold and calculating Mad Dog Sullivan was losing his shit and engaging in increasingly risky behaviour. He figured he might be able to straighten up and fly right if he just went back to work killing people. But the lid on his box of bad feelings was about to pop open. In June, a crim named Brian Mollis became a suspect in a triple murder. When questioned by the police, he inferred that Joe had something to do with it. But Joe didn't, and he was pissed as hell when the cops came knocking on his door to ask him about it. Joe knew Mollis was involved in the murders, but he would rather die than break the cardinal rule of dobbing someone into the bulls. He said, I can't rat him out, but I can kill him. Joe went to visit Brian Mollis at his apartment in Manhattan with his favourite quiet piece, a Silence 22, stuffed down the back of his trousers. He took an oblivious gale with him as cover. Mollis had a friend over at the time. While Gail was in another room, Joe shot at both men, but the gun misfired and they were able to escape. Shocked by this sudden turn of events, Gail recalls, Joe said, make sure your fingerprints aren't on anything, and then we just left. And I knew that was it. It was the end. After the bot shooting, Joe went into hiding, but like a saxophone solo on a fire escape, the heat was on. (laughs) A task force comprised of local and federal agents was formed to track him down. Joe, now on the run, spent some time shacked up with an old Attica buddy in Phoenix, Arizona, sitting by the pool and coaching a woman's softball team. Well, that's what you do to relax, isn't it? Oh, that's what I do Mm. to relax. But Joe knew that if he was going to survive, he would need money for a new identity. He needed a fake driver's license, 
a social security number and passport to leave the country. Eventually, Joe went back to New York, shacked up with Teresa and turned to his old mob connections for assistance. He arranged a meeting with his surrogate father figure and mob handler, John Sullivan, who refused to give Joe any money and told him his calls were no longer welcome. Joe's usefulness to the Genovese family had come to an end. Joe said, When he wasn't there for me, it hurt. I was naive and he knew what he had in me. He played me like a violin. It was around this time Joe's side piece, Teresa, gave birth to a bouncing baby girl. Joe celebrated by robbing a savings bank in Utica with his Arizona buddy who flew in for the job. The heist netted a cool $38,000, which Joe and his mate split. They went halvesies. Oh, that's nice. Joe managed to spend his half fast on booze and coke. In desperate need of more money, Joe teamed up with a petty criminal named Marco Tedesco. That December, they came up with a plan with three drug users they knew on Long Island, Virginia Carson, Richard Bretz and Andrew Soldo. Joe and Marco were going to rob the Prescription Den drugstore in Selden, New York. They were to steal the powerful prescription painkiller called Delorded or Hydromorphone, then sell the drugs to their addict mates. But when Joe and Marco broke into the pharmacy, they found there was no Delorded there at all. Joe suspected he'd been set up. His suspicions were solidified when he met the three later and saw that two of them were packing heat. Joe shot all three of them, then turned to Dedesco, who always carried a knife, and said, You're the butcher. Make sure they're all dead. Tedesco slashed their throats, but Andrew Soldo managed to survive. Although he was paralysed on one side, he was able to inform the authorities who his attackers were. Tedesco was swiftly arrested, but Joe took off to Rochester, New York. In dire need of money, he got in touch with a couple of old mobster friends, Thomas Torpe and Thomas Taylor, otherwise known as the Toms. Thomas Torpe Torpe and Thomas the Eagle Taylor were both big, tough Irish guys standing at six foot four and weighing over 270 pounds each, not just when one stood on top of the other's shoulders and they disguised themselves as one big person with an oversized trench coat. Like you, Tara. I'm actually made of owls. <laughs> That's true. Seven owls under a trench coat. Yeah. That's me. Who? Joe Sullivan and Tom Taylor had served time together in Attica in the late 1960s and had played football for the same prison team, so they're practically related. The Toms had both been bodyguards for the ill-fated mob boss Sammy Gingello. Funny fact, during the planning of Gingello's murder, someone came up with the idea to lower a bomb down his chimney. Only problem was, he didn't have a chimney! Like an evil father Christmas. <laughs> a second plan was to plant a bomb in a child's big wheel out the front of his house. Now, this foolhardy plan was fortunately discarded as being too risky to neighbourhood children. Again, like an evil father Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> I know. They're going to ruin Christmas for everybody. At 2.20am on April 23rd, 1978, Gingillo left Ben's Cafe Society on Stillman Street. Gingillo got into the driver's seat of a borrowed black Buick and closed the door. The two Toms got in the car with him, but before they closed the door, a bomb under the car was detonated by remote control. Because the doors were open, the two Toms were blown out of the car to safety. Gingillo's right leg was blown off below the knee and his left leg was nearly cut off at the thigh. When police questioned him, Gingillo kept his mouth shut and let his middle finger do the talking. I ain't no squealer. Mm -hmm. He was taken to hospital where he died at 3.35am from massive loss of blood. 
After this near miss, Sir Tom's branched out into running pawn shops, peep shows and a gambling joint. This put them at war with a group of mobsters that refused to pay for their piece of the lucrative gambling racket. The Toms hired Joe to take out three of their rivals, beginning with John Johnny Flowers Fiorina. Johnny Flowers was the vice president of the Teamsters Local 398 in Rochester, New York. He had also allegedly become an informant and was cooperating with the U.S. organized crime strike force. It is believed that Johnny Flowers had okayed the hit on Sam Gingillo and the two Toms, but Gingillo's murder was never solved. On the snowy night of December 17, 1981, Louis DiGiulio, a friend of the Toms, drove Joe in a peach-coloured Cadillac to the Blue Gardenia restaurant on Empire Boulevard. The two waited in the parking lot for several minutes before Johnny Flowers pulled in. That's him, DiGiulio told Joe. Joe followed Johnny Flowers to his car with a shotgun in hand. Joe said, He's about 15 feet from the door. He spun around and ba-boom, I hit him with the first. As Johnny Flowers tried to grab a pistol from his boot, Joe said, I was already on top of him. Boom, I finished him off. Nearby, policeman Michael D. Giovanni was on patrol. He'd not yet heard about the murder, but he saw the Cadillac speed out of the restaurant's parking lot. He followed the car, which ran a red light, clipped a car going through the intersection and began swerving on the icy street. DiGiulio lost control of the car and it careened off the road. Officer D. Giovanni said that he initially thought he'd witnessed a drunk driving accident. He and Joe locked eyes as Joe exited the passenger door with a shotgun in his hands. Officer D. Giovanni said, I kicked open my car door and as I came out, he was firing at me. I counted three shots. D. Giovanni fired three quick shots from his own gun before trying to get closer to Joe. He said, I popped the rest of the rounds out and I saw him lurch forward. I went down, reloaded my gun, came back up, and he was gone. After other police arrived, they tracked Joe's mate DiGiulio by the footprints he'd left in the snow and caught him hiding in the bushes of a school on Hellendale Road. Joe was in the wind, but the event had helped provide clues to Johnny Flower's murder and some other crimes. In the boot of the caddy, police found the proceeds of the bank robbery in Utica and evidence which later linked Joe Sullivan to a homicide on Long Island. Joe hid out in the snow for several hours before hightailing it out of town. Two months later, he returned to Rochester, planning on sticking up a few more banks. Joe hid out at a Howard Johnson's motel just off the throughway exit with his sidepiece, Teresa. When Joe and his side chick, Teresa, got up the next morning, the Hojo's was surrounded by the FBI. To Joe's disgust, his accomplice in the Johnny Flowers hit, to Julio, turned rat, cooperated with the government and testified against him at trial. In 1982, Joe Sullivan was sentenced to 25 years to life for the murder of Johnny Flowers and a whopping 75 years to life for the murders of the Long Island drug dealers, but was found not guilty of the Utica bank robberies on a technicality. Media at the time went nuts with the stories of mad dog Joe Sullivan. The New York Post had a picture of Joe and Teresa looking like Bonnie and Clyde with gangster and mole outfits on its front page. This devastated Gail. She cried when she saw it and told Joe, I thought I was your Bonnie. Oh, Joe, I thought that I was your Bonnie. Thomas Torpay and Thomas Taylor were subsequently charged with conspiracy murder for hiring Joe Sullivan to kill Johnny Flowers. But it wasn't because Joe turned rat and dobbed them in. They were convicted of second-degree murder at trial in 1985 and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. 
According to interviews he did with crime writer TJ English, many times since he began his incarceration in 1982, Joe had been offered deals by federal agents and prosecutors to testify against the organised crime figures that he worked for. Joe's response to these offers has always been, go fuck yourself. After all the years of suspicion, Gail Sullivan's life of denial was shattered. Her husband was indeed a murderer who cheated on her. But these facts did nothing to diminish her love for him. Ride or die, Gail said, I absolutely love Joe because he is a good man. Who cares what people think a good man is? To me, he's a good man. Joe and Gail's oldest son, Ramsey, is married with two children and their youngest, Kelly, is a father as well. Kelly even served time with distinction as a US Marine in Iraq. Both men agree with their mother. Ramsey said, he made his mistakes, but I still look at him as a great person. I look at him as my father. I love him as much as any son can love a father. My father taught me everything about being a good man. He told me not to travel the same road that he did. He taught me the difference between right and wrong, even though he didn't do what was right. Ironically, Joe Sullivan would spend a good chunk of time at Sullivan Correctional Facility in Sullivan County. That's on Sullivan Island, right in the middle of Sullivan Lake. Decades inside prison caused Joe to reflect. He said, I could cry about a lot of things, but my deepest regret is the life we could have had. Before Joe died in 2017, he told writer TJ English, I belong in here, no doubt about that. If they were to give me the death penalty, I can't really argue with that either even though I don't want to die. When TJ English asked Joe about what people have written about him, Joe told the author that it's all true, except for one fact that they got wrong. Wikipedia and other internet sources have claimed that Joe was called Mad Dog due to a salivary gland problem. Joe says that's total bunk. He said after he killed Johnny Flowers and was on the lam, the head FBI dude told the other agents, be careful, this man is armed and dangerous. He's a mad dog killer. The nickname stuck when the New York Post and other newspapers used it in their headlines when he was captured, printing articles with titles such as Mad Dog Hitman Nabbed and How Cops Put the Leash on Mad Dog. When asked what was important to him, Joe said, Gail, my sons, the grandkids, it's more than I deserve. I don't know why or how I got to be this lucky. It's all I have to live for. Joe would pay a heavy price for adhering to the OG gangster code. If he'd taken some of the deals he was offered to turn rat on the mob bosses he worked for, he could have cut his sentence short by decades. His son Kelly told TJ English, Him and his code. I've said to him, Dad, what good has your code done for you? Many of your enemies are out on the street because they cut deals with the government. You're in here, in prison for life. What you're saying is, is that your code means more to you than your own family. Joe knew it was impossible for anyone outside the business to understand why he held so strong to his moral code. Well, I mean, also people inside the business because a bunch of them turned rat. They really did. Mm. The 78-year-old convicted mob contract killer died of natural causes on June 9th, 2017 at Fishkill Correctional Facility after a long bout with cancer. A massive 55 of Joe Mad Dog Sullivan's 78 years on planet Earth were spent in some form of incarceration. After his death, a lot of people wrote tributes on Joe's Facebook page. Denise Toro wrote, Joe Sully was a very dear friend to me and my husband. 
I knew the decent person inside this man, though most would think he didn't have one. I came to see the soft human side of Joe and grew to love his sense of humour, his generous nature and his sunny side. He loved his wife and children. He paid his debt and did his time like a man. He spent most of his life in the belly of the beast and now he is free. May you follow the light, dear friend, and rest in paradise. But Brian McGugan wrote, I hope he burns in hell. He killed my friend's father. Gail, you had the nerve to write a book about it for money? If you made any money, give it to the family of the innocent father he killed. If the death penalty was still in New York, he should have gotten it. Why waste the taxpayers' money by keeping the mean bastard alive? Now let's hear from Joe himself. This was one of the last interviews he did. It appeared on CNC's The Fifth Estate in 2011. I got the term mad dog in the last one. I had a shootout. Everything's fine until I shot back. Then that was a mad dog because I shot back. You know, watch him, he's a mad dog. So that name stuck, you know. I first met him. I got out of prison. It was 19... First time was in 1965. She was only 17, 18 years old. Actually, she was going with my brother, Jimmy. You know, he's that, he died a while back, you know. They were kids, you know, a little old man. And I even liked her then, you know, her ways, her actions of this, you know, good person. But I never thought, you know, years later would develop into anything. But uh, 10 years went by. 1975, I got out of Clinton. She had been married, and she was in the process of getting a divorce. I was 37. Yeah, I was about 30 at the time now. I'm about seven years older. Listen, I not called her. We had dinner with this, and I went out different places weeks at a time. But I was always in love with her. You know, I always loved her, you know. Of course, she was different. She was... Good person, hard-working person. At that time, she was working on Madison Avenue. She ran some advertising agency, you know? It's almost like a Jekyll and Hyde. She saw the guy maybe I wanted to be, not the other side. She was never impressed with the other guy. I always termed this other guy. <clears throat> she never saw that side of me, really. Why she loved me. And I loved her, as crazy as it sounds. I loved her, I loved my son. But I was selfish. I'm, I'm just saying, all them years, and I didn't even realize it, you become very selfish in here, you know? Everything's about you. You know, not just the point of like physical survival, but in every way. Everything was about me. I don't know if I'd be here right now. Because I would In here, you let things go. It, it ain't like, when I was coming up 15, 16, 17 years old, I was with guys from the 20s. They were all in 20s, 20s, 30s, 40s. They were real men, they were tough guys. When I say tough guys, I don't mean bullies. But they had a cold, they had a moral cold about them. Where today all I see is pedophiles and rapists and, and it's full of homeless people. These ain't even prisons in a sense anymore as they are shelters. 
And back then, the time was easy for me to do. When I say it was easy for me to do, because I didn't have anything to miss. Now after having my sons, they're both good, good young men, you know, grandfather, five grandchildren, all beautiful kids, but two women. Now without that in my life, uh, you know, the time is very hard. Not the, not the place or doing the time in it, but what you're missing. That I'm sorry a thousand times. But uh, it doesn't change things. You know? And I look back, now the grandfather looks back, he says, who the hell was that guy? Yeah, I loved it. It was riding high. Not all the tough guys in New York afraid of me. You know? And uh, it was all bullshit. It was all bullshit. Well, yeah. I mean, wasn't good, was it? It's quite easy to be sympathetic to him, I think, hearing that. Well, he's very charismatic and articulate mm. and smart. Yeah. You can hear the John Voight thing. Oh, you can hear the John Voight thing so hard, particularly um, the accent that he uses as Mickey Donovan in Ray Donovan. Yeah. I just think it'd be really fascinating if we could somehow do a sliding doors type thing on Joe Sullivan and see how he would have turned out had his father not died when he did and had Joe not been thrown into a world of abuse. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I really do feel that it would have turned out differently. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, he is someone who murdered a lot of people. Now, Tara, this is the biggest project we've ever done. Uh, that's why it's a two-parter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. Out of all the research we did, uh, I don't know if you came across any of it, but he, he never really showed any remorse. Um, well, you're the one – you actually read the, the um, biography. Uh, look, TJ English mentioned in some um, interviews that he was remorseful, but I didn't read any quotes from Joe about, like, any particular details of remorse. Did he say anything like that in the book? He had regrets about fucking his family over and not being there for his sons mm-hmm. as they grew up. But about the people that he murdered, and look, they weren't all wise guys. No, there was that like um, friend of his dad really early on. Yeah. And there was also someone else when they were um, like traveling around, him and his mate. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, killed he him with a like, hammer. Yeah, just murdered some random person That's with right. a hammer. Yeah. And of course, these wise guys had wives and families. So there would have been kids that didn't grow up with their fathers because he, he whacked them. Yeah. And yeah, he shows no regret about that. He's um, a very interesting person. Uh, yeah, I think there are a lot of different sides of Mad Dog Joe Sullivan. He's like a Rubik's Cube. He's a lasagna. <laughs> He's a lasagna. He's a layered, complicated lasagna. He's a layered motherfucker. <laughs> I actually really like what he said himself. Yeah. Like, In the end, it was just shit. It was just bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, well, that was Mad Dog Joe Sullivan. What a story. Yeah, mm. indeed. What mm. a long story. I, I don't think we've ever said so many names. And, and the fact that most of the surnames had a G in them was also a little bit distracting. <laughs> it was a bit hard, wasn't it? <laughs> hey, I've got a question for you. Mm, yes? What is Aussie as? Aussie as a tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I would love to hear one. 
Well, I'd like to thank um, our mate Alex Middleton for bringing this one to uh, to my attention. Thanks, Alex. Great. So, Barney, have you ever wanted to have a live 3D IMAX snake porn experience? I have. Well, you're in for a treat. It's winter here in the Southern Hemisphere and it's really fucking cold in Australia at the moment. We have to ride our kangaroos to work through the snow and they don't like it at all. It'd be understandable to think, I know, I'll go up to Cairns in North Queensland to warm up for the winter. But going to Cairns in winter is not a good idea. A Cairns couple were sitting at home minding their own damn business when they looked up in horror as the ceiling flexed and cracked above them. Was their house haunted or a portal to hell opening up above them? Well, kind of. As they were trying to Google the number for an exorcist in their area, two ginormous horny snakes came falling through the ceiling mid-coitus. Whoa. There was no reptile dysfunction happening here. I like what you did there. The weight of each python was about 20 kilos or 3.2 stone. Um, Their size, combined with their passionate, rumpy, pumpy, caused the ceiling to break under them and the kinky couple plummeted to the study below. Scrub pythons, also known as amethystine pythons, are one of the longest snakes in Australia. They can grow up to eight and a half metres long and weigh up to 50 fucking kilograms. Cairns snake catchers, chief cock blocker Matt Hagen was called to the house in White Rock on Friday to extract the sexed up pair. Hago was surprised to find two five metre or 16 foot long scrub pythons going at it hammer and tongs. Hago said, oh, they were a breeding pair, so they were killed up together. It's unusual to get them that big in the roof, but hey, it's a good start to the breeding season. Hago, the python expert, fleshed out this horror show by saying, oh, they make a lot of noise. If you're lucky enough to host a scrub python party in your roof space this breeding season, it can get pretty wild as males fight each other to impress females. Occasionally, these interactions can result in strange smells wafting through different rooms and even structural damage to your house in the form of ceiling stains or cracks. Look, I read it's actually not unusual to find scrub pythons in your roof during mating season. In fact, Hago advised those of us who aren't keen on a live snake porn experience to set up gutter guards on your roof to minimise access points for them. So I suppose if you are into it, you should open up your roof gutters. Mm, So I have a question for you, Barney. Yes. Yes? If 40 kilos of snake sex can bring down a ceiling... Could a 50-kilogram snake masturbating vigorously also do the trick? Sounds about right. What about an orgy of four 10-kilo snakes? What do you reckon? Uh, well, uh, yeah, sure. It's one of my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to think more about I don't this. know what to say to these weird questions. So, yeah, all that snake sex, you, you, your house would just stink of snake jizz, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, if, you, if you're into that, it's a good thing. Uh, I hear it smells fresher than the store-bought snake jizz. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, that's all you can get. Usually. Well, if you're not in Cairns right now, that's, that's right. what we're living on. Oh, that wild snake juice. That's that's some that's some pretty good mm, stuff. So anyway, that was disgusting and frightening. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> Thanks, Alex, for uh, yeah, letting us know that such a thing could possibly happen. Thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. If you just want to buy us a drink. There's a PayPal donate button there too because they're pretty thirsty. Yeah, damn straight. Um, We'd also like to thank our Facebook group moderating team. Thank you so much for for your hard work. They do good work. 
I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. You can follow us uh, through our Facebook page or join our group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Insta, we're at Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, BloodyMurderPodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes, and merchandise. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So I saw the tram home from work with this guy that I work with. And we were talking about drinking because why wouldn't we be? And he was saying how he was thinking of like moving from beer to wine. But he didn't like that once you open a bottle of wine, you have to drink it all. And I was I was jo- I thought he was joking. Did I you was- tell him the teaspoon trick? No, no, I just went to him like, oh, yeah, once you open it, like you have to drink it all in one sitting or it goes off. And he was like, yeah, I know, it's wasteful. And I was just like, oh, fuck, he means that. He thinks that. I was like, dude, they have lids now. You can put the lid back on. Oh, that, oh right, yeah, because we don't have to do corks anymore. No, we don't need to do the spoon trick. And also, I'm not sure the spoon trick even works. Really? Don't you put the spoon into the champagne? It's meant to make to it not both wine? flat, but I don't believe where's the science where's the spoon like science bitches there's none there yeah I don't, I don't see any but yeah i just love that he's he's got he's got to be in his 30s he's gone around his whole life thinking that if you open a bottle of wine you have to drink it all or it goes off i mean it's true of vodka but not of wine oh yeah you got, you got to drink a whole bottle of vodka in the, first, <laughs> in, the in, in in the one sitting basically well yeah i mean if you leave it overnight it's like oh it's oh, gonna be no. off in the morning it'll be curdled you don't want your vodka getting curdled. Well, it reverts to its natural form, which is a potato. potato. <laughs> You're just a potato. You go, how the fuck did that potato oh, get in that bottle? Cut-double off. cut double <laughs> off. That's not what I want. Nine. <laughs> get your filthy, sticky potato away from my beautiful vodka. <laughs> I don't like potatoes. It's problematic. You just give me vodka and you take potato and you go fuck yourself. Joe liked to get up. Joe liked to get up. <laughs> Did he also like to get down? He also, but he especially liked to get down. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't no squealer. I'm a dancer. <laughs> hey, baby. They thought I was squealing. I was just dancing. Well, it is the 70s. <laughs> I really like disco. Oh, no, oh, that was a failure. I really like. After whacking a guy, Joe liked to go get a bagel. He liked to get those big pretzels, you know, the ginormous chewy ones, okay? And then I do some dancing. I like to dance. What can I say? I've got the music in me. It's in my feet. It's in my buttocks. It's everywhere. <laughs> I just gotta I hear the rhythm and I just gotta dance. You know what my favourite is from Game of Thrones? (laughs) Charles Dance, Charles Dance. I love Charles Dance. (laughs) You dirty rat. (laughs) Joe's next contract was to take out an old school crim and wise guy named Carmine Lilo Galanti. Galanti was born in a tenement building. (laughs) (laughs) The devil's here. Yeah, Satan has arrived. Although he did sometimes dabble in the squarehead industries of fish sorting and artificial flowers too. 
How do you think he sorted those fish? Would he have done it alphabetically? Well, maybe boy, girl, boy, girl. Oh, that would take some time, having um, to, like, peer at the fish's junk to see which, which category it went in. Oh, yeah. Fish cock here. That goes in this box. And fish fudge that box. No. Yeah, that, no, that doesn't make sense. Maybe uh, species. Yeah, yeah, via um, species. That's probably a good idea because then you can sell them. Size? No, I think species is, is probably more likely. Right. Maybe he actually just sorts them in order of attractiveness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at this fish. Oh, look, yeah. look at the fish tits on that one. Oh, oh, it's a boy. She's hot. She goes in the hot box. <laughs> <laughs> the hot box. <laughs> oh, that's a bit of a fuggly fish. She goes in the fuggly box. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we've figured it out. <laughs> Galanti got 12 and a half years in state prison for this, but was out in nine. These guys must have really kept the, their lawyers wealthy. They must have helped them build so many swimming pools. Yeah. And probably hid bodies under them. Yeah. A lot of bribery going on too. Probably POs, they're bribing as, oh, yeah, yeah. as, as well as guards to say they're being on best behaviour and all that. So much money flying everywhere, but no sense between them. No. They got no sense. They got all those dollars, but yeah, they got all no I, sense. All I want to do is eat one of those big bagels. Oh, gigantic ones, okay? <laughs> I mean pretzels. Whatever. They're chewy. They're chewy. I like it. I like the texture. Oh. Sorry, I've probably fucked up your um, punchline. Sorry, I can take it out. I'll take out all your shit. Take out all my shit. Just fast forward through Tara's bit, okay? I will. I do. I always do. <laughs> The girl one should shut up and let the man read. Oh, let the man, sorry. The girl one should shut up and let the man talk. Yeah, well, that's, you should be telling me I should stop writing music because my, my theme is hated. Oh, two dumb cunts with sand well up their anuses said that. I'll think about it. I'll add it to my repertoire. I'll try and like wind it in, weave it into my yeah. um, my rich tapestry of insults for you. Yeah, write it in your insult diary. <laughs> I'm going to. It's, it's, Schedule it's, one in. I uh, I have more than one diary for you. I yeah. mean, it's a it's a big job coming up with fresh insults for you. Well, it is. I have it's... a team of monkeys working on them around the clock for me under Poppy's uh, watchful gaze. If they don't come up with good stuff, she eats their nuts. Although Galanti's death was bearing down on him, he held tight to his cavalier attitude, saying, No one will ever kill me. They wouldn't dare. They wouldn't dare. <laughs> no one's ever going to whack me. They wouldn't dare. I told someone on Twitter that I was just going to talk like that for the rest of my life, and huh? I think I will. That's when John shut it down. Joe, John called out to him. Joe. Hey, um, Joe. <laughs> hey, Joe. Do you want one of these huge pretzels? <laughs> Stop trying to whack the guy. I'm feeling like it's a little bit suspicious. Joe turned back to the candy shop to see Galanti halfway up the road and about to turn a corner whilst shoveling licorice all sorts into his mouth. Yum, yum, yum. I deserve a treat. Yum, 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 yum. <laughs> it's hard to smoke my cigar and eat these lollies at the same time. I mean, oh. this candy. <laughs> no, it's kind of good. Makes, makes the cigar taste nice and sweet, you know? Like your mother's teat. <laughs> You'd say pussy, I think. They're, they're disgusting, these guys. Like your mum's clam. <laughs> <laughs> like your mum's bearded clam. <laughs> I'm going down to Chinatown. I'm going to get me one of those little golden pussies that wears its armature. <laughs> After snuffing out the Greek, Joe has mentioned in his biography that he whacked another eight men. On the bum. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Look the daisy. Hello, vicar. Oh, cheeky. Mm. <laughs> 
so cheeky. Mickey's to... Ugh. <laughs> Off to a rollicking start. <laughs> <laughs> the first word. Yeah. I couldn't even get the word Mickey out. Lone Shark Stein was known to have over a million bollars. Oh, that's nothing. That wouldn't even buy him a peanut. <laughs> Seriously. It wouldn't buy, what, a million bollars wouldn't buy one peanut? No, not in this economy. (laughs) No, not in this economy. Yeah. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Not even a peanut. Maybe half a peanut. Not with that some bitch Morrison in the White House. Yeah, do you you know of, like, anyone who sells half peanuts, though? Like, how would you even buy one? Serious question, Barney. Well, it's illegal to sell a half peanut. I mean, (laughs) there are some underground uh, delis that you could buy them from. Oh, and they put put them in those little bags that they put drugs in, those little speed bags. Yeah, I know people will sell me a half peanut. Oh, really? But you're allergic to nuts, so why would you want that? Well, yeah, I know. That's that's another story. (laughs) Barney, two cakes. You know what ended him? It was nuts. It was nuts that killed him. They shot him with half a peanut. Shot it right into his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) He was over by the Hudson River eating a hot dog. (laughs) I'm going to blow the doors off your mausoleum, baby. Actually, that that did sound like a sex thing. Yeah, it it? really did. Oh, how was your date last night? He blew the doors off my mausoleum. Hey, baby, I'm going to blow those doors (laughs) off your mausoleum. (laughs) All righty, so now we have yeah. a new euphemism. Good. Oh, shit a bucket. I'm going to blow those doors off your mausoleum. Oh, if I give you a thousand bucks in cash, will you let me blow the doors off your mausoleum, love? Oh, I could really go on Herping Ham Sandwich right now. <laughs> <laughs> they, had, they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 